Welcome to the TCM Challenge, a monthly movie review podcast where Matt and I challenge each other to watch some classic films. This month's movie is 1967's Wait Until Dark, and I'm Matt from Buffalo. And I'm Matt in Arizona, and I am so excited to review this movie. I'm ready for our second edition of the Krenacast also. But yeah, this was certainly an interesting one. I I guess let's jump right in it. Like this was my pick to recap where what brought us here. I had a few choices to go from. Again, we're dancing around the option of a musical. So I had 1943's Crazy Girl, which was an option. But I kind of feel Mickey Rooney is some sort of a goblin and I have a lot of hard time with him in movies. So I steered (laughs) away from that one. We had 1940's His Girl Friday. A Cary Grant vehicle. I love me some Cary Grant, so that was also an option. An Elizabeth Taylor vehicle, Night Watch from 1973. And Greta Garbo's 1929, The Mysterious Lady. But then we had the big one, Wait Until Dark from 1967. And really, I settled on this one just because, you know, joking aside, I like my Richard Crenna. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, obviously. Uh, we'll get into it, but, you know, Alan Arkin and probably his best career role, I would argue. And yeah. then Terrence Young, you know, a lot of times we may or may not touch upon the actors, but or the director. But the director had a lot of, you know, big uh, James Bond credits under yep. his belt. I think three at this time. He sure did. And then this movie is just all over like AFI's top scary movies, top movies, period best creepy films you know all that kind of a thing and you know it was a blind spot i hadn't seen it and i wanted to dive into it so i think it was kind of an obvious decision in the end right well i i didn't know if it was going to be an obvious decision but it was the one that i was hoping for because unlike you i have seen this before it's been a long time but listeners who who may or not may or may not be aware of my background. I love horror films. I love suspense films and I love horror and suspense mostly from the seventies and eighties, but also this, this era too, because we're getting towards that sort of aesthetic. And this was a film that I had discovered because a long time ago, I think it was back in like 2004 Bravo TV did like a special, a multi-night special of the hundred most scariest movie moments of all time. And this was, this was high up there. I can't remember what number it was, but it was high up there. Um, so it motivated me to, to check it out, and I loved it. I remember loving it when I saw it, but it's been a long time since I saw it until the show. Right, and before we dive too much further into the movie itself, we got to do our level setting. And it feels like, you know, this is right at that cusp of turning into like what we kind of maybe consider like super modern filmmaking, like the seventies kind of film revolution. It's right Right. at that, that edge because, you know, top grossing films at that time are starting to see, like, I think that transition. So the highest um, box office from 1967 is The Graduate, which is one of the ones I would say is that kind of modern new filmmaking. You got your, you know, contemporaneous music at the time, kind of that modern music, kind of the very mixed emotion ending, right? That is not a happy ending. But you have that mixed with Bonnie and Clyde, which I'll kind of put into that a little bit as well. Guess who's coming to dinner? But then kind of like the classic... um, you know, ensemble war film of the Dirty Dozen. 
and you know camelot um kind of epics and stuff like that so and then jungle book kind of to round out some of those top ones and then for the awards this was just nominated for um best uh, actress for audrey hepburn she didn't win katherine uh, hepburn won for uh, guess who's coming to dinner win. yeah yeah but it, it it's in some pretty tough competition up there for best picture in the heat of the night did win bonnie and clyde yeah. which maybe hot take i think is kind of overrated but kind of fun uh dr doolittle weirdly the graduate who maybe should have been the best pitcher in the end and then guess who's coming to dinner were the the major nominations that year god 67 was a good year just listening listing all off all those movies yeah we'll go back through and there's like some kind of light years this was a strong one yeah all right Show. Oh, actually, first off, before we get into it, let me kind of own up to a complete misconception with this movie. Maybe I think it was the reason I maybe steered away from it all this time was I kind of I knew the broad strokes of the story. Right. But I had the misconception that it was just going to be a kind of exploitation film, just kind of one note in the suspense of always just creeping around the corner of, you know, Audrey Hepburn just always not being able to sense someone as this blind woman and man, oh man, am I happy to oh, have no. not been the story. Right. So complete this misconception is, for all these. This years is to- I mean, there is that, but this is also a big psychological suspense too. Oh, primarily I would say. Right. And again, I wouldn't make the assumption that from this era, you wouldn't have a female character, but just being, purely victim and she is hardly that in this which is also something really nice to see as we go through it right all right to jump right in i guess we'll do our normal kind of progressing through the plot even though i think that will kind of fall apart at a point but right off the bat oh really nice kind of tone setting opening largely kind of dialogue free but we have this we find her to be named lisa at a point traveling from montreal to new york um on a flight largely just musical kind of backing you will hear some you know environmental music or a dialogue rather and all that but right off the bat it's tone setting the great Henry Mancini, by the way, who who composed oh, yeah. many sc- many scores, including the famous uh, Pink Panther theme, scored this movie. Yeah. So, and again, I think The Simpsons said a mascot's uh, dream composer or whatever, best friend. But right off the bat, it's like it's perfectly kind of setting a very ominous tone. You don't quite know where this is going. It, you know, it it really does a great job of setting the stage for it to be a, a suspenseful thriller throughout. Well, I mean, than just, just like I, an overt horror or anything like that. I mean, just the title alone. Wait until dark is is suspenseful and kind of intriguing by itself. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So what we see is it's going to be the major MacGuffin of the film is. She is up in Montreal and has a doll stuffed full of heroin. Uh, Again, kind of surprising to me, maybe my naivete, 1960s movie overtly talking about heroin. Again, 
you know, you have a very beatnik drug dealer, professional criminal and Alan Arkin coming up again. I, I just wasn't really prepared for that kind of, you know, very modern type of story there. So they stuffed this doll through the, with these heroin packets. She's flying to New York, successfully gets it through all the customs. Again, largely dialogue free. She sees a super weird figure up on top of a lookout at the airport. We later find this to be the Alan Arkin character wearing weird circular, like beatnik, you know, sunglasses, kind of a weird hat, just very, you know, out of place character, very weird. She sees it. We have no idea what's going on. Again, one of the threads that I like through this is it kind of just throws you in. It doesn't overly explain stuff. It doesn't super handhold you. It's just kind of, here, you're a smart 60s audience. Come with us on this. And she hands off the doll to just some random stranger that she sees. And she's escorted off by Alan Arkin. There is the part that you wouldn't have seen if you saw this as the play that this was originally kind of started out with. But it's a nice little bit of kind of breaking what will now be a very, very confined kind of claustrophobic film. Right. Right. And pretty much jumping right to the introduction of Krenna uh, and his associate. Real quick, just an important plot point. As Lisa is arriving in New York and she sees Alan Arkin, she has already kind of met in passing Sam, who's going to be Audrey Hepburn's husband. And she ends up passing along this doll just with, you don't see, you don't hear what she's saying, but she basically forces the doll into his possession before she gets taken away by Alan Arkin. So, right. So then we get introduced to the greatest bit of wardrobe in this movie, Richard Crenna's coat. Oh my God, this thing is baller, by the way. Yeah, isn't it? Oh, it's fantastic. Just like an old, like sailor's pea coat. And he has that collar pop like nobody's business. I was just so jealous. I, that is like my dream coat. I would never be able to carry it off as well as 1960s oh, no. Krenna, but it's it's pretty awesome. So we are introduced to uh, Mike Tallman, Krenna's character here, and um, a character who I, or an actor who I really liked in this movie. Again, I think the acting top to bottom is pretty on point. But Jack Weston's uh, Carlino character. And right. you really have no idea what the, these characters are. Are they police? Are they criminals? Are they, you just have no idea what it is. And not until fairly far into it, do you actually kind of start to understand who they are. So they just go up and kind of intimidate some local kids, by the way, can't imagine you would recognize him, but the kid tossing the ball, any idea who he is? Did you look at no, any was- of the trivia or anything? No, I wasn't paying attention. Who is he? Uncredited. First role, that is Beast from the Disney Beauty and the Beast uh, musical. You're kidding. He's a voice of Beast. And also, by the way, he he was kind of like a teen heartthrob. He's in a bunch. He directed a million Friends episodes. Very accomplished actor, singer. Yeah, this was his first, first role. Interesting. So, yeah, just super neat kind of pointless bit of trivia there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so uh, Robbie Benson, by the way. Uh-huh. Um, so they ask, you know, is this so-and-so's house? They go in, they find a note, 
basically saying, hey, make yourself at home. This is Lisa's place. They go in. They really make themselves at home. You see, Carlino is kind of meant to be a little bit of the slower, maybe kind of muscle of the group, Denser. I would kind of say. Yeah, but not necessarily like comedically stupid. dim or anything like that. He's no, not right? stupid, no. No, and then, you know, Krana's character is a little bit more of the... I don't know, sensitive, kind of the brains of the operation, I would kind of say. Mm. But neither one of them strike you as like super great career criminals. As we kind of find out, more or less, they're kind of like low they're bit kind of too, well, flim flam men. Because we, well, well, we're going to get introduced right now to who Alan Arkin's character is. And we find out through him that they're, Krenna and, and Carlino are both, they're con artists with that are working with Lisa, but the way he characterizes them is that they're, they're kind of amateurish and you kind of see that. Yeah. And it's it, the Krenna's character is the one that I'm most interested in, in this film. So, you know, you have Audrey Hepburn kind of stealing the show in her, you know, Audrey Hepburn way. I mean, good Lord, you know, just incredibly captivating on screen. Right. And then you have mm-hmm. Alan Arkin, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute, is the rote of just like kind of off the wall, kind of bonkers. But I found myself kind of looking towards that, the Talming character of just, what is he? Because he's like, you know, Alan Arkin kind of explains kind of like a lonely two-bit criminal, but he carries himself with kind of unmistakable, I mean, this is Richard Crenna coming in and saving today and talking down to everybody in Rambo. He's the astronaut in the the boar fest that we watched a little bit ago and he's carrying that same kind of gravitas character with this i don't think it's out of place you end up kind of i don't know relying on him even though he's ostensibly the (laughs) number two criminal in this in this movie it's just such a interesting character of like man, the way you carry yourself, this is all really beneath you. You should either be a much more accomplished criminal or straight, right? And it's it's just such like an interesting, I don't know, layered kind of character. There's a heck of a lot else going on there with him. And we'll talk about that more as like the plot progresses, I would imagine. But I really like him. He is the most level-headed, but you say that, you know, he should be way ahead of him of where he is, but the, 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 what they show us right away is um, who's really in control of this whole operation and who really is ahead of everyone else. And that's when we get introduced to Alan Arkin as rote. Yeah. So they made themselves here home in this apartment, um, fingered up everything. Um, Carlino just goes and makes himself the most comedically old fashioned movie sandwich, just right. handfuls of everything on there. And I was just kind of laughing at that. Um, but in comes wrote, um, Alan Arkin. It took me, I knew he was in this and it took me a really long time to recognize that was him. Cause I'm used to, you know, little old miss man sunshine. Alan yeah, yeah. Old man, Alan Arkin. Right. So I'm like, Oh damn, that's him. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. And for, it's just, no, for me, it's, it, it, for me, it's the voice. He still has the same voice. Yeah. 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 Um, so he's introduced and, you know, comes in where you know with a a giant rug over his shoulder um you know and completely dominates the room comes in and starts to have 
what is really just it, it must have been lifted straight from the play of just such crazy kind of over the top in a good way i'll say kind of intimidating actor monologuing when he comes in right and basically i mean we we don't have to go through a beat for beat but he more or less kind of lets everybody in on oh by the way this is not lisa's apartment we're in this place already casing it i'm looking for this doll i need to hire you to get it i've already turned the place over i can't find it i need your support Oh, and by the way, if you decide to leave, you just already have your fingerprints all over this place. You're mm-hmm. kind of screwed, right? He, it's always he has outthought everybody along the way. That, that's my favorite. Mo- multiple steps ahead. That's my favorite moment of this whole exchange is when uh, Krenna and Carlino are just like thinking like, this guy's crazy. We're out of here. And he basically threatens to turn him in. And I just love the moment where, like, he says, you left your prints all over the place, whereas me, I only touched one thing since I came in here and wipes it off and he's going to go. I, I just And he, he, he extinguished his cigarette into a little baby food jar, right? which was like another very weird kind of detail. Again, they I don't think- explain it, when, but they make a point of showing you he's doing it. Just everything in this has a setup and a payoff. Right. It's very methodical in how it's written. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I guess you could categorize it as over the top, but I was, I mean, I'm already intimidated by this guy. There's something very off about him and and kind of scary, which pays off in the third act later. Yeah. I mean, the, I, you know, I always try and get like a little pulse on where, you know, opinions are on this contemporaneously or, you know, not contemporaneously, like right now. And I have seen people kind of go, you know, there's a couple things that you have to just let go and roll in the film. Is that as, as we go through, there's a safe, you know, very, you know, obviously in the middle of the room. And everybody's assumption is the doll is going to be in that safe. What a lot of people struggle with is why doesn't Rote just hold a gun to Audrey Hepburn's character's head and force her to open it. Instead, we'll, we'll get into it. They go into a very contrived kind of scheme to do it. And I'm like, okay, I guess I can kind of see that. But the thing is, I don't think you necessarily have to just roll with it for the film. Arkin's character is just so weird and, you know, cruel at a point that I I could say, I'm buying into He likes this. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 That's the thing. It's like, yeah. Okay. Maybe you would just intimidate her and just force her to open it, you know, beat her up or whatever. But the character is just so weird and unsettling. You can see that there is some motivation beyond just him purely getting the the doll. He likes to mess with Krenna. He likes to mess with Susie. So I'm like, no, I I don't necessarily accept that as just a a a screenwriting contrivance. I'll go no, with it. I, I thought the same thing too. I just thought like he would, you know, something that straightforward to, in his perspective, that would be no fun. Right. You the know? one part that I do half struggle with is I do wonder if like Carlino's character would kind of roll this and whether Krenna and Carlino just go, ah, oh, screw it. We're going to knock him out and then kill him or whatever. And then we'll just take our chances. Right. Like, clean up after the mess who would even know we were here Mm -hmm. i kind of think like those criminals put into that corner don't 
react all that smartly, they might react with violence. I mean, Carlino's character walks around with brass knuckles in his pocket. So that's like, right. oh, okay, maybe I'm not going to totally buy that, but who Although, gives a crap? They, the movie's fun. I'm going to go with it. And well, and to be fair, they do show us what happens when they try to turn against him later. But we'll get into that. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, okay, you know, as we see later in the film, you know, they were going to try and turn on him, presumably at some point, blah, blah, blah. Anyhow, that's kind of the idea is we're going to have to try and hire, we're going to hire these guys to try and get this doll. Now we're introduced to, and this is just the, the craziness kind of the movie of like, Sometimes writing a thing for a set where there or for one set in a play kind of sets things up in a very interesting way. And it tells you about rote. He was doing all this scheming in that apartment, maybe half knowing that Audrey Hepburn's character is about to walk in at any moment. So she comes in, they all hide to corners and it's quickly established, not necessarily in the most, you know, unclumsy way that Audrey Hepburn's character is blind, right? She has a phone call. That's kind of laughable, but again, it's set, it's paid off later. She calls um, uh, her boyfriend, husband. I'm actually not entirely husband. sure. Okay. Husband. husband. <clears throat> yeah. Oh yeah. They have the same last name, right? Hendrix. So yeah. Sure. Hendrix. They're both Hendrix. And she just talks about, you know, she was the best student in blind school today, which you don't really find out until later that she, only is recently blind, blind. Yeah. right so it, it's kind of comes off as like lazy kind of writing but when you look at it in retrospect it's like kind of laugh out loud like goofy but then it's like ah, uh, okay she's only now becoming self-sufficient or like right at the edge of it so yeah she's gonna kind of talk this up so i'm like okay in retrospect i'll allow it again again well, it's and a, i think it it's a pretty tight script when you go back and revisit I think everything it, I think it sets up an important dynamic too between the showing the kind of relationship that Sam and Susie have, right? Because um, Sam is going to be in this movie for a little bit, and then he's going to be largely absent until the final act of the movie, and even then, it's probably like the last two minutes of the movie. Um, but I think there's all this talk about being the best uh, person and student in blind school today, and then later the scene between the two of them shows that you know while it may seem to the uh, unaware eye that she he's kind of he could come across as kind of mean to her but what he's really doing is is forcing her not to settle or give up you know still pushing her to, to be the best most accomplished person she can be in spite of what's happened to her so yeah. i i think it sets up that 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 relationship quite nicely actually oh yeah i mean you could have this character just not be there it's just a character that's on the phone at points or something like that. Right. Like he strictly doesn't need to be there to advance the plot per se. But what you do get is that really nice scene of she drops a salt shaker or whatever in the kitchen and you sit there and you're like, Oh, he's not going to help her with this. He's like trying to help her kind of grow. And you can just see quite a bit of like a natural true dynamic of, She's not frustrated with it. He's like, I, w I, I would help you if you couldn't do this yourself. He's just trying to make her kind of grow by a little bit of the appropriate amount of struggling. Right. right. And it, it just comes off as like a, a really nice kind of relationship. 
which you do end up seeing pay off again. Like everything here has a setup and payoff is that when they eventually try and convince her that, you know, he's fooling around or he was involved in this, you know, we find out Lisa was murdered and is sitting in um, Audrey Hepburn's closet in a minute. Um, Susie's just like, no, that that's not my husband. Right. And mm-hmm. you can kind of believe that having seen it. Right. So, yeah, right. I mean, there's good stuff there. So this is like the first like clear, true, obvious on the screen bit of suspense. Uh, they're gingerly walking around in here and she's just oblivious to three career criminals being in the room with her. And it is. This is where I thought the whole movie was going to be this. So I'm like, oh, and then but it's kind of undercut and immediately she leaves and they're like, oh, my God, you know, they're they have that kind of moment of coming down off of that very uncomfortable situation. They find out that Lisa's body is in the closet. Right. They kind of get the drop on wrote a little bit, realizing mm-hmm. that he is spinning some lies. So they know he's kind of full of it. They help dispose of the body you know, very, you know, obviously knowing it will be found out. And at this point, it's not spoon fed to you. It's part of the overall extraordinarily elaborate scheme that they're going to be having unleashed. And again, I I just wanted to point out something that you just said, where you say that uh, they got one up on road. I I almost wondered, given what we know about road, if he, if he didn't intentionally give that part away so that he would, uh, rope them in on this this conspiracy because it's right after they discover lisa's body that they try to leave and he basically says well fine you leave everything you have all your prints here we'll just set you up for her murder yeah jumbling a little bit of the details here but this is that payoff for that rug he brought something it's something that i thought about you know yeah so again this is one of those like screenwriting things that um i really really like is just smart characters having information over others and controlling when it's released. It's just something I always find really satisfying in film of just being controlled information and seeing those moments of revelation of wheels turning. And we get that very satisfyingly at different points throughout now the story with Susie as she's starting to kind of piece this all together. So Man, oh man, I don't know how much we need to get into or want to get into like every beat of the story that they un- unload on her here. But I think the major kind of characters that they've. Oh, actually, before we get into that, we have to be uh, we have to cover the second most evil character in this movie, which is the little bitch upstairs, Gloria, Gloria. by the way. So yeah. this is the, uh, uh, her upstairs neighbor. There are other people in this building, right? So Gloria is like, I don't know, 14 year old, 12, 14, somewhere in that range. Somewhere like girl. That, yeah. Yeah. So this is the girl that Susie Audrey Hepburn thought was in her apartment smoking, but it was actually, you know, uh, wrote and all that. So she is the upstairs neighbor who helps um, Susie sometimes. And um, we have this scene where, man, it's really tough for me to kind of understand this one because we have a, an interaction and just 
out of nowhere, very, very light prompting. Gloria's in the apartment and just kind of has a little bitch fit and starts throwing crap around in the blind woman's house, including knives and just wanton, crazy cruelty. It's one of those things where it's like, you made a real decision on this character and me as a person who wouldn't think to normally go into a blind person's house and just rummage the place up. I have a hard time coming back from that and thinking that this character is redeemable in any way. I'm like, can well, Rope, like cut her up just a little bit at some point in the movie? I, I thought the same thing that you did. Um, especially since if longtime listeners of, of me, especially know how I feel about child actors and stuff. <laughs> Um, that being said, I, I do think it's a smart decision. It may not have been a smart decision to open her with that, but I think it's smart that she's never that bitchy again throughout the rest of the movie and actually is instrumental in, uh, helping to, uh, save Susie later. Well, that's the thing. It's like, if you're looking at the purpose of the scene, what it does is it establishes the knife, which comes in later and it establishes the ice box, you know, the, the refrigerator, I right. guess. Right. So that's like the meat and potatoes of why it's there. But if we're talking about this character who does have like a moment of tension later when she has to get past the muscle, the dumb muscle guy of the group, the Carlito character later on, I don't want to also kind of root for her to get tuned up a little bit by his brass knuckles, which I'm kind of at the point. Thanks to this scene, I kind of want her to go, Oh no, let the kid get through at this point. I'm like, eh, whatever happens, happens. Right. So it's like, Oh man, I, that's like the one genuine thing in this where I'm like, I have a hard time. Yeah. But even then I was just, even then I was like, I hope she gets through, but you know, only for Susie's sake, not for her own. Well, yeah, that's the thing. So anyhow, like that is, it's tough coming back from that character moment there. But anyhow, cut to. Don't worry. She she only threw, she only threw around the unbreakables. That's how she justifies it afterward. (laughs) And I guess it's also maybe the other thing is like Susie, like takes blame and forgives her showing like, I guess some character stuff there, but man, better person than I am. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't I didn't need that scene. I mean, it's Audrey Hepburn, for Christ's sakes. We don't need to have her, you know, save a puppy be, type scene was, in a screen. I was going to say, why, why are you going to be mean to Audrey Hepburn? Right. I mean, she, again, <laughs> super magnetic, just beautiful on the screen. It's like, eh, I, I'm with her, right? <laughs> I don't yeah. need more help to like her on the screen. I will say, you know, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but I think for the most part, the you know blind acting by Audrey Hepburn is pretty good. Like I, yeah. like there's there are some people who I can't really describe it, but when you watch them, they can't play blind very well, and I think she does. Yeah, yeah, I would say. Well, I, I'll broaden that. Um, Gloria aside, I think all the acting, top to bottom, in this was pretty interesting and right. effective, right? And you know the Alan Arkin, the Susie. Uh, the Richard Crenna characters, you know, they all kind of did everything that they needed to do in this. And they all, you know, lived up to kind of like the stage production, right? They carried it through characters and all that, right? So, yeah, it was all good, top to bottom. I think she was totally deserving of that that nomination. Yeah. 
All right. So like I said, the, the thing is worth rewatching because of all the setup stuff. So while they were in there, you know, all the characters are writing down phone numbers. They're writing down details that they saw in pictures. I mean, it's kind of slapping you in the face with it in retrospect, but just very every action has a, a reaction in the script. So they did all their kind of groundwork in the, you know, um, scoping out the apartment to set up all their characters coming up. So the most interesting one I argue is Mike Tallman takes on this character of a friend from the Marines of Susie's husband. Right. Right. Um, very kind of gentlemanly kind of a stand up person. And you see that, I think you can tell that that's more of like the, the, the criminals, personality too he's not in this to hurt anyone yeah he carries a knife um but i think he's always that non-violent criminal and will only ever react to violence as kind of like our last resort so as funny as it is he is a character who is home invading and misleading you know all-time shortlist movies you know icons audrey hepburn so he really should be obviously a character you actively root against but i find he's one of those guys that you kind of end up like finding a lot of interest and kind of rooting for him he's almost kind of like a dependable cornerstone weirdly in this well the persona that he takes on is this friend of 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 sam's and every time he's interacting with Susie, he's very charming you Mm -hmm. know super disarming which is which in retrospect it makes it more suspenseful and kind of scary even though he's not the scariest one of the three um but it is scary to think that he's so charming and so glib that you buy into his con game right away right and this is goes back to like he's so effective at it that it makes you wonder again like how did he end up tied up with lisa who is i'm guessing some kind of just two-bit drug mule right like and like carlino who is just kind of whatever like we always kind of like carlino say to muscle carlino is a i mean when i when they keep calling him sergeant carlino i take it he's an ex-cop or a crooked cop that got fired so he would be a Mm -hmm. useful tool and um i mean as far as lisa goes we don't really get to know her but i mean you saw her at the beginning she's a young attractive woman so i could see why they would want one of those on the team yeah um model by the way the uh samantha jones um real model actress so yeah convincing in that but it's just like man it's not that i ask for a a wait until dark prequel but it does make you it, it makes me interested in just like when they're not getting caught up in some psychopaths you know um crazy crazy ass scheme like what is their normal scam is it lisa is just the honeypot you know krenna comes in as like you know the savior to like carlino's like intimidating brash like hey i'm the you know the the police officer here because he ends up playing that role effectively probably leveraging actual history yeah so it's like what is when if they're like a three-person plan or whatever what is their normal scam? Like, you know, are they the matchstick men kind of stuff? It would be interesting to see that when they're not kind of gotten the drop uh, by rote, right? Because 
he is effective at ingratiating himself and he gets into a strange woman's apartment for a better part of a day or however long this, you know, charade goes on for, you know, he's, he's in there and he weasels in quickly. And you see like the really devastating thing when eventually Susie figures these things out, um, Mm -hmm. how much his specific betrayal. Oh, when she finds out he's in on it is a really good scene. Yeah. Right. So you have that character. You have uh, Jack Weston's as the Carlino there. Um, always kind of playing like the very, the bad cop to Kren is kind of almost good cop, but he's not playing a cop. Right. And always very effective at it. Again, you do see Rote needling him early on, calling him Sergeant. Um, probably because he was just a cop that's, you know, um, got fired or whatever. Right. No, right. that's what I thought he was. You know, ex-crooked cop. That's what I got from him. Right. And then Alan Arkin takes on a couple characters in this of just the most absurd kind of thing of like, yeah, he's just getting off on this. He plays, again, wrote senior and junior. Senior. Yeah. yeah uh, just coming in in old man makeup and just doing full on disguises for the blind woman. <laughs> right? right. And it's just like, Oh, this is just absurd, but a heck of a lot of fun, right? But again, he played it just so weird, and he just get, is getting off, obviously, on just messing with people, right? Well, and the, the thing is, when he comes in the two times in disguise, what what I think works about him is because, he, yeah, like you said, it's it's ridiculous, it's 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 over the top, but he's very quick about it. He never overstays his welcome. When he first comes in as the senior. He's all blustery and upset and then just leaves. You know what I mean? Right. And they don't set any of this up, by the way. We're kind of in Susie's shoes to a degree because we don't see like the whole planning well, set up and all well, that. All Susie, all Susie knows at this point, and it's established earlier in the scene with Sam, is that she's aware that, that someone was killed here, not in their apartment necessarily, but in this neighborhood uh, the day before. So she's heard about Lisa's death, even though she doesn't know the full circumstances. Right. And what they basically try to unfold is that it's more or less that Alan Arkin's character, um, the younger version of the fake character was supposed to be in a relationship with the Lisa married to her. The father character is suspecting that she's been stepping out with him And, you know, they play up this whole thing. They start planting the seeds of this doll has to be around. And basically they start to strongly hint at or not hint at. They want her to kind of figure it out herself, but they keep pushing for her to kind of have like the inception type realization that her husband was on this trip and formed this relationship with Lisa, killed her basically trying to drive this wedge that she will open up the safe and give over the doll that is connected in this way in right. some form or fashion. Right. So they're yeah, not, this is also, Oh, go on. I was going to say, this is all set up earlier in the, in the scene between um, the three criminals, because wrote basically tells her that tells them that uh, um, Sam, Susie's husband is a photographer and he was just supposed to shoot this one model, but she was going to show up late because Rope called him ahead of time and said that she was running late. 
And so what it all turns out to be is that um, as they're playing this game with Susie, they're trying to give her the information that the person who ended up dying was this model that he was supposed to uh, uh, shoot uh, for a photo shoot. And that's, that's the connection that they try to make. And it's believable. But well, what I'm it, saying it, is that they all set they all set up these pieces uh, in the beginning, and now we're seeing the game play out. Right. And it's all believable and interesting in the way that they do it, in that they're kind of trying to push her to identify it herself or figure it out, right? They're not, well, they are spoon-feeding it to her, but they're not, like, trying to force her and just overtly come in and bluster and say, you did this. They're trying to get her to very, will, you know, offer no. up the the safe to it is a it is a full-on con like right psychological con right so i it it makes you it it is interesting like what was that discussion they held inside the the old volkswagen of it's it's cruel in that it's kind of like harkens to what rope might be doing but it's also going way out of your way to you know, avoid any violence or anything, which feels a lot closer to the Tallman Krenna character. So it's, it's interesting of like, where did this kind of all come from? Um, and we're not privy to that, but you right. can kind of argue it's coming from either one of them and make arguments that one, it's, it's the very nice way of doing it, or it's also the very incredibly cruel, <laughs> cruel way of doing it. Cause it's also trying to plant the seed that your husband murdered somebody and cheated on you and oh by the way we're just gonna f off by the time we have the doll you'll just have to deal with whatever you know trying to suss out whatever the truth is right Right. which is hardly a nice alternative versus just going in screaming and yelling at her to open the safe and it makes you wonder also at the end if rote was going to do any of that anyhow or just burn the whole well, building down in the end well, no I, I i honestly think and and having watched the film again i honestly think that there's there's the scene in the scene where they're they're discussing what they're going to end up doing mike asks wrote at one point so who are we going to have to hurt and, he, and wrote says no one uh and i took that to mean that yeah he's not going to have to hurt anyone but i always i think wrote was planning to kill everybody involved by the time that this was all over yeah I would think that's also a fair, you know, thing in the end, right? It's like you even can tell if Mike he's getting and, off on killing people. Even if Mike and Carlino don't end up trying to turn on him later, I had a feeling that they would be in, they would end up dead. Which is why um, in the scene where they're setting this up, when they when they're demanding more money as part of payment to go along with this plan, uh, he doesn't resist. Wrote doesn't argue. Yeah, there's not going to be any payment in this in the end, and it's also just like is that little bit of heroin that big of a deal back then? I don't know. I mean, it wasn't just like kilos of it. It was like small bags. So I don't know. Maybe that's again, my naivete of just, was this all worth it? Well, it is, if this is what you're getting off on. Right. So again, well, it's, and, and, well, it's Norman and Bates type is, stuff. I, well, and the important thing is, you know, it may not necessarily be monetarily worth it, but wrote such a psychopath that I think the, the whole game is worth it to him. Right. Yeah. And I think that's just the thing. You, If you don't get that, you do wonder, like, really, what's the point of all this? It's like, this is goofy. No, no. You have like a really, you know, demented character in the Alan Arkin role. Right. So as they go through all of this stuff, 
Um, again, I don't think we have to do it beat for beat, but what you start seeing is very, very satisfying. Um, Susie starting to question stuff and play it very internally, just very subtle types of things of just recognizing that um, uh, wrote when he came in in two different characters was wearing the same squeaky pair of shoe. shoes, equally squeaky, right? So she's starting to... Again, it's it's she, not super, you know, turning around her superpowers on people, but you're starting to see her carrying that self-sufficiency of she's starting to piece together. Like, well, why are you guys always monkeying around with the blinds? Like, yeah, someone's futzing around with the blinds. And, and what I liked about it is someone who, you know, is a fan of the genre of horror and suspense and, you know, slashers later is that I, I didn't really realize this, but what Susie's character is by, by being smart and intuitive, all that she is becoming the prototype for what becomes later known as the final girl, the one who survives to the end because she's more perceptive and aware of everything of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of, that could easily be a cliche, right? But you're seeing that it's just very natural. She's starting to question. She's starting to piece together like, why is there always a different person coming in or a phone call that always follows with why is everybody always monkeying with my blinds and all that kind of stuff? So she's really starting to, you know, piece together that something's not right here, but like the really devastating that you, the thing that you find out is it's, she was captured by Krenna's charm. She's questioning a lot of this, but she doesn't think he's part of it. Right. right. Which maybe that's the step too far of like, you know, this guy who you've never heard of spoken of before just is suddenly here at the same time of all this other stuff. But again, I, I'm not going to question it at this stage. Right. But also, too, I think it goes with the fact that when when she first meets Krenna in his disguise, uh, he saves her from a fire that she can't locate. And we find out the whole backstory of, of you know, her accident and what led her to be blind involved fire. And she's very phobic about that. It gets down to some sort of uh, deep fear that she has. So I, I think that she connects to, I don't Mike think it because, has to be that deep. If you're blind, fire is going to be pretty goddamn scary. But you know what I mean yeah. though, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's something psychological with her. So the fact that she bonds over him through what was a very scary triggering experience, I think helps her connect with Krenna more. Right. So as we kind of progress through, I think one of the, I don't know, the next beat might be, um, she's starting to piece this together. She's kind of asking why her people are doing this, but she's not got it kind of all together. People have started to claim that there are police out there staking out the place and all that kind of a thing. And kind of leaves, but he basically gives her, you know, the number to call if she knows anything. And, and what, what she doesn't know at this point is the number that's been calling her and the ones that they've been calling out to is this pay phone that's right next to where they've parked across the street. Right. So this is where Gloria now comes down and like, you know, now that she got that hissy fit out of her system, she's now going to be doing the turn of the hero. This is the person who can see from the window upstairs and has a line of sight towards the phone booth. So basically, um, Susie asked, okay, if you see anybody come out of the van out there and make phone calls, 
call my number, ring twice, and then hang up. And well, it will be first, the secret code, if, right? Well, she first tells Susie, because Susie tells her, like, look out the window. Is there a police out there? No, there's no police car out there. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. There's just right. this van. And right. then she the, sees the, Car- Carlino trying to sneak in and look at look around. Um, right. So, and that's when Susie hatches the plan about call, call twice. Right. So again, that controlling, twice. yeah, the controlling of information, the detail that the rote faction outside never had is that Susie is not exactly completely alone and without allies inside of the apartment. Well, there she's not helpless. She's not, she's not, a, she might be blind, but she's not oblivious is, is the way, I, right. you know. And their assumption is that she is just a blind, helpless woman, right? And that's far right. from the case. And she also has a functional set of eyes that can help her in there. So what we see is a very effective scene of, you know, the characters are continuing to screw with her. They set up this call, you know, you're going to hear from us. And she gets the coded message coming in saying that, oh, a lot of the cops and the rope characters are phony, right? She doesn't understand at this point that Mike is, you know, in on this as well. So she's now like, okay, things are kind of falling apart here. Um, There's some funny business about there's some manipulation going on. I don't believe these are really the police. I don't believe that this is really the road. At this point, she knows that the cops are probably phony. The rote stories are phony. It's the same person in the same shoes or something to that effect. But, you right. know, Mike Tallman, he is my tall man, you know, stand up guy. He's going to be the ally here. In this, we find that Gloria had the goddamn doll all this time. The, um, the safe in the apartment was just a misleading red Mm -hmm. herring they never could get in it it could be just full of old soiled rags for all it has nothing to do with anything i'm glad it was because that would have been too obvious right yeah no it's a fun little like man it makes me want to punt gloria again but whatever so gloria had it brings it into the apartment to try and kind of hide it in there she doesn't want to be held with this this thing so Susie hears the music's accidentally playing. She's like, God damn it. You had this all this time. They grab it. Susie, you know, uh, takes it. Gloria F's off back to her apartment. Susie calls um, Mike at the number that he left um, and says, Hey, I have the doll. And what you have is an absolutely bone chilling kind of a moment. You have some great stuff at the end, but for me, this is the most chilling part of the movie is that she calls Mike and goes, I have the doll. She hangs up. Mike's like, hey, I'm coming. Don't worry. Hangs up. Not, ex- and then, not expecting oh, to get another signal. No. And then you get the two ring signal from upstairs of, you know, you just talk to somebody on that phone outside. And she's just like, oh, my God. You know, this is now she's everything is cut out from underneath. Yeah. So that 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 switch there is for me overshadows everything that you see in the rest of the movie, even though the rest of the movie is just fantastic. Just that the, the rug being pulled out from underneath you, that, that just kind of pit that you feel in the tummy kind well, of a thing. That, that well, was just a, like an incredibly effective moment. I and thought. that revelation is really what I would say kicks off the roller coaster to the end. I mean, 
yeah, it's not as action packed as today's movies, but this really starts the uh, the ball rolling toward the climax. Yeah, and I, I haven't seen it, but I got to imagine if this was made today, um, that um, the guy from Avatar, he's the the blind man, is going to turn into like Die Hard in the apartment or something like that. And it almost yeah. kind of sets it up for that, right? Of she knows that Mike's right outside. He's going to fake running a few blocks away or something. So she has a few moments to try and level the playing field. So they did have a cool moment where she's like, okay, I'm going to compose myself for a moment, but she's not really composed, but she's got to try and do something. She has a cool first instinct of like, I'm pulling down the sunproof blinds and I'm going to break every light bulb in the house. Well, well first she tells she, cause Mike comes back with, and, little does she know wrote and and um carlino are just right behind him but she says she throws them off the trail and says oh the doll's at his studio which is down the street or something yeah so she buys a little bit of time there and then she ends up sending off gloria past carlino who stays behind to guard the building and tells her look go to the bus station wait for sam to get there and then come back home when he when he arrives and then uh, she goes and she starts getting ready. And like you said, this is the great scene where she starts uh, taking off and basically smashing every light bulb in the apartment because she doesn't need it. So and in throw, the hallway. Throw them off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was waiting for a moment of like, because she's smashing them. I'm like, is she going to use the broke glass as like a footstep indicator? But that doesn't necessarily come in. But I could easily see that be a, you know the the final girl last stand kind of a thing right. of like she uses the sound doesn't really do that she does something even creepier <laughs> later on it sets up even a creepier moment oh, yeah. in the movie um but kind and of let me just sets let me that. just say can i just oh, say uh going forward when because we're starting to get to the movie where the last act really does fulfill the title it, it takes place mostly in the dark i don't know how you watch this but when I was rewatching this movie for this show, I really wanted to get the full aesthetic experience. So I was watching this at night over this last weekend. And when we get to the part where the lights are going off and she's getting ready for the final act, I turned all the lights off in my apartment. I shut all the blinds and all that was on was my TV. And mm. I got to say it was the best aesthetic viewing experience I could have had for this last act. It was so at middle of a Saturday afternoon for me. So I, I didn't have that experience. It still was quite effective. I will say though. Um, so at this point, also her phone has been cut wrote, like you don't quite understand what he was doing when you saw it earlier, but he very creepily used her cane to lift up the, the phone cord to slice it. So she is a, you know, quite, on her own now apparently there was just two people in this building so there's just nobody else around or anything like that right so it's setting up basically mike is going to be coming back i know he had you know it, i'm all on my own here so he comes in right and it's kind of revealed that I never could get into this safe. I know you're, um, you know, in on this. And he does a, a very interesting kind of thing of like more or less kind of goes, okay, you win. I'm just going to leave. Mm-hmm. 
right? And that's kind of that. I think it's telling you really that he really was going to avoid any kind of in strong arm intimidation. Well, that's not his name. Well, and at the same time, too, he thinks Carlino's taking care of Road. Right. So it's not like he's super innocent in any of this, right? He's, you know, thinking the dirty work is being taken care of somebody else, but his hands are clean, right? I think he, I think he's capable of making that mental disconnect of like, he's completely endorsing and helping facilitate a murder somewhere else, but it's not me, right? He's above all that kind of stuff. So I was genuinely shocked by it. Well, not shocked, but like, oh, I didn't see that coming. As he's kind of bidding her farewell, like, you know, you're not going to be seeing from us again. He's stabbed in the back by... Well, as he opens the door to leave, yeah. Right, yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. I mean, this is now... We see off screen something that we're misled to think is Rope being run over and killed, but it was actually Rope killing Carlino, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So he is killed, tumbles down the stairs, and is now a dead body in the middle of the room. You never have any final thing with him. He's killed off very kind of surprisingly brutal again in the movie that didn't have a lot of overt brutality in this lisa was killed you know without leaving a mark on her body uh and then you're set to like what is the true just rush to the finish just like as kind of thrilling as any kind of movie of that era kind of gets i would kind of say yeah is wrote is now in he's chained the door shut this is now a truly contained thing there's not going to be any escape he gets in and is just. She knows it's, she knows it's him because he's still got the shoes on. Yeah, and any of like you know the charades are over. You know, right. it, it, it's all over, right? It's rushing to the final confrontation, and where you get just like incre- incredibly sadistic stuff out of Rote is his final intimidation tactic is to just start sprinkling gasoline all over the apartment, right? right. And to you know basically start playing with matches of let us know, tell me where the doll is or it's all going to, you know, we're all going to go up together. Um, She gives up the doll because at this point it was just stuffed back in the apartment. Right. And he just can't resist intimidating and just messing with her when at this point, yeah, he's just going to burn the house down. Right. I mean, that's kind of the only, I I mean, that's the thing is I, I, I he's going to kill her anyway. Right. So he just can't help it. And she did set up one kind of trap in this, which, again, it's another one of those things where it's like she paid it off earlier where she was talking to her husband. She goes, are you looking at me? And he goes, yes. And she gives him like just the raspberries. Right. Right. At this point, she set one trap. She put in like acetone or something, you know, something for the film developing right in a flower pot and she goes wrote are you looking at me and he goes yes and she splashes him in the face with right it. and it's just like oh my that's fucking that's also a baller move that was just pretty pretty badass right well and then the the, the i mean you're right the part where she finds out mike is, is probably the scariest part of the movie but then the the, the creepiest one of the creepiest parts of the movie is after she sprays him with the acetone she goes for the one light that's still on in the uh in the apartment and wrote, throws the knife at her, but just as she smashes that last light and you just hear sounds in the dark for the next couple of minutes. 
Yeah, and then you get like a very super effective thing. This is one of those things where it's like, man, you end your movie on like the best five minutes of the whole movie. Yeah, you you just send people out remembering just like how badass the end of it was. And this is really kind of doing that in spades because what you get is her now she has the the apartment is now soaked in gasoline at this point. He is covered in a potentially flammable material. Um, you know, from whatever she doused him in, she now has matches and is lighting them up. So the only well, no, lighting for, now is for, first. Gone. First things first is what Rote has the matches first. So he strikes one, and that's the single source of light. Right. Then she finds his gas canister, and she and she starts right. throwing it at him, spraying it to try to see if he can catch right, him right, on right. fire. Right. Yeah. She stumbles over that and douses him with that. So she then starts doing the match thing. And it's one of the screen caps of the movie. It might be on half the posters is her with, with her blind face with a match in front of her. And I'm just like, oh, man, this is making me uncomfortable. And, and, and making him tap out to see where he is. Right. So this is, for me, like the creepy part where I was expecting to hear like glass breaking under shoe or something like that. And he does a really creepy thing, by the way. Also, he takes off his shoes. <laughs> to walk mm-hmm. around silently in the apartment. So I'm like, Oh, is he going to step on glass? No, no, no. And that doesn't happen. What happens is something that's even weirder and creepier. Cause the way they stage it and end up shooting it is she tells him to pick up my, you know, the, 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 the cane and just start tapping it. Right. So what mm-hmm. you hear is now just tapping in a dark room. She's trying to escape, finds that the door is locked. And what you end up getting is the very, very effective, incredibly creepy thing is she forgot one light in the house right it's the light from the refrigerator the fridge which they've been talking about this whole movie so again another payoff yeah it's just like who would have thought the refrigerator would be that big of a deal in this but what you get is just the extraordinarily upsetting creepy shot of him tapping methodically but now the room is lit up again lit by Mm -hmm. one little itty bitty refrigerator light bulb right well and, so, and she and she she doesn't realize that until the the fridge does its humming thing that it always does when you open the door right so again understands what's going on we get the setup of the knife from earlier on again just it, i guess this was the reason for the freak out um kind of cutting through a little bit of it you get a little bit more stage direction. She is locked in there. So he gets kind of the drop on her. Doesn't realize she has the knife. They're walking into the the bedroom part of the set. And she stabs him. And he drops. And now you get what is, I've heard described as the most offense, uh, effective jump scare ever. It has to, it, it's for me, it definitely, it definitely is. I have to think too, because I've not seen a lot of the monster movies from the 30s and 40s, so I can't imagine it was the first jump scare. But it's the first jump scare that I can think of in modern cinema where it's the killer coming out of the uh, out of the darkness. Uh, oh, it, so it's cliched as hell now, obviously, right? But it's in a movie that had nothing approaching this as a technique in it. So when she's walking away, it's like a little bit of a weird camera framing well like where she tries to, to to yell out of the door but realizes right. that she can't open it so she's gonna instead go back downstairs and try to open the window 
And yeah, it has right. it, it has this weird camera angle. But what I like about this, and compared to the cheap jump scares of today, is that this is this whole ending scene. By the way, has no music. It's completely yep. silent except for the tapping and everything like that. And the cliche, if you watch any of the you know shitty modern horror films, is that they'll have music and then they'll they'll drown everything out right before. The, the so you're programmed to, to know something's about to come. Yeah. And the fact that there's no music, yeah, you could argue it's cliche, but there are, you know, there's no way in 1967 when people are first watching this that they're expecting Alan Arkin to jump out of the darkness. Right. And it's effective because they didn't do that cheap shit at any point during this. Right. And then Every they give the, bit of suspense when, is earned. When he jumps out, that's when they do the musical sting and the suspenseful music. But until then, it's completely silent. Right. And it works because now at this point, you're really caring for this character. It's not just slasher victim five or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it's again, when these things work, it's because you're committed to the characters. You're invested in what the scene is. And it's a payoff to a lot of setup. It's not just the fifth in a row in this thing. So, like, I don't know. Did you ever end up watching uh, The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix? No, I still have to get around to it. So I argue that has one of the most effective jump scares ever in it because it's only happens like six episodes into the run up until that point, there were no jump scares and it happens in the middle of like a super dialogue scene where you're super invested in these two characters having this conversation. And then it just has the most shit your pants jump scare moment ever. And because it's totally earned. Oh, it's wildly off guard. It's just like there's a million reaction videos online of friends knowing that this is coming. And it's just people leaping from their chairs because it's it's cheap. Like, it's always a bit cheap, but it works when you're invested in the characters and you put in a lot of work to make it pay off and have it be well, effective. A, right. There's a way to do jump scares. Right. You know, and, and, and it's a lost art because people would rather go for the immediate shock than than catching someone off guard and like i said they do a bunch of telegraphing that something's coming it's much better in something like this or in halloween or what you're talking about hill house where they're not telegraphing it it just happens right or you know for the record if we're going to score this this is up there the jump scare in Alien with the jazz hands from the Alien yeah. is up there. Um, the Hill House one and then Exorcist 3 off the top of my head. If you're oh, the, the with that one. Yeah, because that is just like there's a bunch of like misleads when you think it's going to happen. Yeah. And then when it finally happens, it's like, OK, that was pretty good. Right. Yeah. So there there is like an actual skill to this when it's done right. And this is probably one of the grandfather versions of it. And it, it was this this was the. This was the moment that was ranked in that Bravo special of the hundred scariest movie moments. And this is what sold me on watching the film. So, well, I mean, for jump out of your seat, sure. But I would say there are more upsetting moments in this. There are more upsetting, but if you watch this special, it's all about these scare moments that worked on people. So, but I mean, rightfully so It, it is scary. It's very effective. So back to the actual plot. What it is, is that was probably his last real thrust of energy because now he's just got her by the ankle and he's like creepily dragging himself by jamming the knife knife that he pulled from himself, Yeah, you know, dragging him to this. 
and we never quite see how well, this happens. Oh, go on. He's, he's getting closer and closer, and she is desperately trying to find the plug to turn off the, uh, the, the one little bit of light. light left, right? Yeah, and she's just crawling into this little corner of like the deepest part of and, the set. Um, and screaming, and, it's just the music yeah. is going, and it's perfect. Music cuts. You don't really see what happens, um, but the police are on the way. You know, um, what is it? Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Sam. We never mentioned his name. Sam. Um, he's coming in with that little shit, Gloria. Um, she, know, she she did has... what she was supposed to do, and and yeah, it, I mean, Su- Susie wouldn't have been able to figure it out as quickly as if it wasn't for Gloria. So you got to give her that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they come in. <laughs> Nobody seems all that really put off by the reeking of gasoline and bodies littering. With the, the fact that there are two dead bodies in, in the apartment. Yeah. So it, that was like a little like, shouldn't you be like more horrified here? But okay, okay. So they go in, you know, he's screaming for um, where uh, Susie is. Mm -hmm. They find that she has, in fact, survived somehow. We don't really see how, why we don't. Honestly, we don't really need to see how it effectively worked. The lights went out. It was back in her, you know, the power dynamics switched back. She, you know, survived. Arkin's dead. Weston Carlito's dead. Um, well, Weston is too. Um, but Tallman's dead. Um, and you know, everybody survived. She is the uh, um, award winning blind woman of the year <laughs> or whatever. And that is kind of it. No real denouement. It is. We don't really need it though. There you go. I mean, this no. is. adrenaline and then right out the gate you know right. it doesn't overstay its welcome decent sub two hour runtime. thank you let's get out of here so yeah i mean that's at the end i mean matt uh, this was kind of your baby it was my pick final thoughts does it stand the test of time how would you like this yes. one up i uh, if you if you're someone who uh, first i'll qualify this if you're someone like me who loves horror movies and specifically these kind of suspense stalking movies and you've never seen this this what this does hold up um you've got the prototype for the final girl you've got the third act climax you know boogeyman versus the 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 final girl um but a bunch of great character stuff setting it up it's not your typical horror movie but when it gets to that third act god watching it in the dark was so effective like i was just curled up on my couch watching it it was so awesome um, even if you're not a big fan of horror movies, I think that this just works as a thriller because it's not your typical horror. Um, but absolutely, I think this stands the test up the test of time. And, and the cast is great, but, you know, particularly handing it to Alan Arkin and Audrey Hepburn, it, it, they're, they're just so good. And yeah, she deserved that nomination. So absolutely recommend. I'm so glad that you let me convince you to watch this. Oh, it didn't take too much convincing, but uh, again, I'm I'm the 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 Krennus stand here, so I'll say you know I I think he was like low key kind of stealing the thing to like the flashiness and just the magnetism of you know the rest of the cast, but Krennus was super interesting in this. It really shows off in like all the best ways that this was a play put to the screen. It did enough kind of expanding on 
the world, you know, careful kind of direction, effectively using lights and angles to do like really creepy stuff that you wouldn't get in the play. But it took it and respected that material enough to just like let the material stand. Right. Um, the it was written by the same guy who wrote um, Dial M for Murder, which was also like um, a play. So I think like if you wanted a spiritual trifecta of movies, wait until dark, dial in for murder and rope. I think you could do pretty well having that triple header, right, of just like these contained kind of play thrillers. Just really good stuff. Uh, I think there's enough here that I always kind of ask about or want and want to see in older films of just depth of character and not just have them be kind of like one note John Wayne killing Indians type of acting and writing. And it's it's here in spades, right? And just the suspense. I do wonder, I just kind of like, you know, big question of just like, would a 20 year old really like this? Would they think it stands up the test of t- to the test of time with like modern kind of suspense? Because I sure think it does. But it just makes me wonder of like, what do younger audiences kind of think of this? Because it this has everything that you would want in it. Good character, good strength, a character growing and not being just a victim. It's got everything. It, it it's super fun. Yeah, I'm. Super I mean, this is one of those things fun. where you know. Yeah, you would have to ask that question whether modern audiences or younger audiences would have the patience for this. But I watched this movie and I'm just kind of like, you know what? Fuck what those audiences think. This, well, this yeah, works. ultimately, yeah. Well, I think we need to tie this one off and set our sights to September. So, Matt, this is now your pick, even though it felt like the uh, wait until dark was kind of yours. But I'm super happy with that. We do have some options here. And again, we have the choice of some musicals. We're always dance, no pun intending. We're always dancing around that as an option. So your choices for September are first off 1978's The Tree of Wooden Clogs, an exploration of the lives of Italian peasants clocking in at 186 minutes Matt, for the love of God, please don't pick this one. It, I was gonna say, it just seems that, fucking brutal. Doesn't that sound like three hours of nothing but fun? Oh, I know. I looked it up and I clicked through it and I'm like, oh, Lord, it, it's it's tough. I very rarely will editorialize when I send you the list, but I don't know if you noticed it. But under it, I wrote nope, <laughs> really, really small. I hope you kind of picked up on that, if nothing else, and subconsciously. But it's your choice. I will abide by whatever. I totally didn't see that, by the way, but now I'm looking at him. That's hilarious. (laughs) Okay. I'm just hoping it's soaked in a little bit. Um, So next up is 1962's Hands of a Stranger. A concept pianist loses his hands in an accident, but gets a new pair from an enterprising surgeon. Only problem is the donor was a murderer. I think most famously, this was parodied by a Simpsons Halloween special. Maybe most famously for that, Homer gets a hair well, transplant, the, but the hair was well, and there was there's a late nineties movie that has the same kind of thing called Idle Hands. So yeah, this has been done several times. Right. Nineteen thirty six Follow the Fleet. Two sailors on leave romance, a dance hall, hostess, 
and her prim sister. Starring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, here's one of your musical selections. Next, a second option from 1936, Broadway Melody of 1936. A Broadway columnist tries to use an innocent dancer to frame a producer. Jack Benny starring. Uh, And then finally, 1956, Lust for Life, starring Kirk Douglas. Very weak impression, I tried. But an intense and imaginative artist, Van Gogh, possesses undeniable talent, but is plagued by mental problems and frustrations with failure. Matt, Kirk Douglas playing Vincent Van Gogh. That sounds kind of outrageous. I had no idea this existed. Neither did I. Yeah. So um, now I will say my hope. I think you know me with my selections. I am rooting for Hands of a Stranger. Coming in at a brisk 85 minutes. Just that goofy science fiction-ness. We had some heavy movies here recently. I think we're due for something goofy. Now, what do I think you'll pick? I was leaning towards the Fred Astaire and just breaking our lack of musicals with Follow the Fleet. But please, build your suspense and let me know what you have selected. Well, I had to think about this because, I mean, a few of these I've heard of, mostly I've never heard of them before. And the the idea of watching Kirk Douglas play Vincent Van Gogh, <laughs> it was very intriguing to me. And... and um, it's also directed by Vincente Minnelli, who's one of the you know mm-hmm. best directors of the time, married to Judy Garland, father of Liza Minnelli. Um, so that was something that I was leaning towards. But I am very happy to report that the long streak of no musicals is finally over. And Ooh. what better what better way to kick off our musical uh, reviews? than a classic Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie. Yes, I am indeed uh, choosing Follow the Fleet. I think we um, know each other quite well, Matt. <laughs> We've it, kind of and it's not, just Fred, it's not just Fred Astaire and, and Ginger Rogers. This one also has Betty Grable and Lucille Ball. So Ah, yeah, there we go. I, I looked that one up. I couldn't remember which one Lucy was in, but from my hometown, Lucille Ball. So I have a little bit of a connection here. So next month, it will be our first musical review. I was, I did very much consider The Hands of a Stranger, but given the fact that we're, we have October coming up on us, there's got to be something cheesy that you'll be able to pick for that month. So we'll be fine. Oh, I mean, we're at the whim of the random number generator. It's never a guarantee. I know, but it's, unless but I it's cook October. The books a little bit. October gave us that robot mummy Aztec thing last year. Uh, you're welcome, by the way. Uh, and we, we discussed, we might have to change this because it's going to work out for me always getting Christmas and Halloween if we don't break our combo. And you being the horror hound, I, I think I'm owing you, uh, uh, you know, we need to do some tradesies coming up at some point. Okay. But we'll cross that when we get to that. So, all right. So follow the fleet. It will be airing just right around the corner uh, on Labor Day, I guess. They're celebrating um with some musicals. So uh, September 5th at 3.30 p.m., you know, schedules may change, so bear with that if that happens, but definitely tune in. I am quite looking forward to our first musical. So I, I thought with that, you would be. I mean, you know, you, it's, it's been a long time coming. 
Yeah, I mean, again, if I wasn't just genuinely creeped out by Mickey Rooney, it, we might have went in a different direction this time around. But again, I'm quite happy with what our selection. Well, I mean, so. and like I said, what what better way to kick off a classic musical than Astaire Rogers? Yeah, I mean, there were a few options here, but it didn't always necessarily have that air of credibility with it. Now that being said, I don't know where this ranks in the Fred Astaire filmography or anything like that so i'm more than happy to discover it here it'll be fun to talk about oh yeah all right so again we're wrapping up here but the conversation can always continue with us for this film let us know what your pet tallman um you know fake prequel history is what was the character faults that led him to being connected to uh lisa in a two-bit drug uh running operation definitely let us know we're happy to continue that conversation there's a number of places where you can do that so first off you can be reached at uh, via email at tcmchallenge at gmail we can be found on facebook excuse me at the Matt and Matt TCM Challenge podcast. And we can be, uh, we're on Twitter at TCM Challenge. Really reach out to any of those. We're happy to engage with people. Again, the numbers on the show are really surprisingly great. We love having people engaged um, with us and continue the conversation offline. So thanks for everybody who's been listening along. Let's keep the fun going and definitely let us know how we're doing. We can also be found individually on Twitter. Me, I'm at ProSubZero. I am constantly watching a lot of movies this summer. It's been a movie of film uh, or a summer of film, you know, without any real sports. That's a different up. one. So I've been too. watching I, a ton. I, Yeah. I like your variety that you've been doing lately. Uh, I am dancing around diving into old samurai films in a big, bad way. So I might be uh-huh. doing that going forward, but yeah, I'm really trying to cover my butt with like a lot of diversity, capturing a lot of like missing gaps here. I have a, I am on Letterboxd for what it's worth, but I don't really share too much on there. But I have just a running list I'm trying to work through. I really just sort it by the shortest film and kind of work from that, you know, going forward. It's tough Mm -hmm. to watch long epics anymore. But Matt, where can we find you? You can find me at mhanson0207 talking about all kinds of nerdy stuff. But as you can imagine, listening to this episode, we're rapidly approaching October, so... Expect a lot more horror stuff on my feed for the next couple of months. Exciting stuff. So with that, thanks again, everybody. I'm Matt in Buffalo. I'm Matt in Arizona. Thank you so much for joining us on this late night edition of the TCM Challenge, where now that all the children have gone to bed, we can talk.